This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. It's so great to have all of you joining us this weekend. Uh, very much enjoyed my discussion with John Tamney last week on his book, When Politicians Panicked. I think that was a, a great listen and really a great exposition of all the things that happened in those murky months of March and April last year. So I recommend you go back and listen to that show if you haven't. And uh, check out the book if you're interested, because I think Tamney is really an excellent uh, economic or financial journalist. But all that said, we've been focusing a lot on Rothbard of late uh, we've obviously worked our way through his larger works, uh, most recently, The Ethics of Liberty, which was, I guess, four-part show, which I enjoyed very much. Uh, but we want to revisit some of his smaller and shorter essays, and he wrote a ton of them. He is very much or was very much a strategist and a sociologist of liberty and Austrian economics. He understood an awful lot about history, far more than most economists do, and of course, produced volumes on the history of economic thought. But really, his more generalized knowledge of history, especially European history, medieval history, winds its way through almost everything he writes. And so uh, with respect to the Volcker Fund and other sources, he was writing a lot about strategy. And these uh, writings come out in both Ethics of Liberty and For New Liberty at the end of those. But really, even before then, as early as 1960s, he was writing about this stuff. And so today I thought we would consider one of his perhaps slightly lesser known essays, but very important. It's called Left and Right, The Prospects for Liberty. And I've got two guests today. You know both of them, Ryan McMakin and Tho Bishop, editors at Mises.org and thoroughgoing Rothbardians. But by way of background, Tho and Ryan, I just want to say that this was originally published by Roy Childs. That's a name a lot of you probably know. He is at one point the publisher of a periodical called Left and Right. And so while he later published this essay in book form uh, in a, a broader book called Egalitarianism as Revolt Against Nature and other essays, which we now publish at Mises.org and also sell at the Mises Institute bookstore, uh, this essay for today's purposes came from 1965, the initial spring 1965 edition of Left and Right. And so Roy Childs, in his introduction to the collection of essays, says, you know, this is almost Rothbard's version of the Communist Manifesto. So he thought it had a lot of staying power. He thought it was an impactful essay. I'm not really thrilled with the idea of the Communist Manifesto because I think that that is going to lend itself to Rothbard's critics who consider him a utopian or otherwise. But um, so Ryan and Tho, I guess I'll start with Ryan. Uh, you know, give me your overriding thoughts about this. It's Even though it's only about 30 odd pages. So ladies and gentlemen, you, we're going to link to it and you can read it this weekend quite easily. He, he packs a lot of history into this. You get a sense that Rothbard is really broad, and I think that's an Achilles heel for a lot of libertarians. Yes, I think the history part was the strongest part of this essay, and I didn't really remember uh, that aspect of it. I haven't read this essay until today, uh, until, I don't know, 10 years ago or so I read it. But uh, And I mostly remember a lot of his uh, more movement-oriented comments on here, but the, there's a whole historical view in here which is very important. And having recently read his uh, History of Economic Thought, 
there's a lot of the same themes in here. And also a lot of the same themes you'll find in Ralph Rako's series of lectures on the history of liberty. They have very much the same general historical view. And so Rothbard's offering historical view here that's not significantly different from any other time period in his thinking that I'm looking at. And so you look here at, okay, what is the, the general sweep of history? What is liberalisms, by which he means libertarianism, classical liberalism, and so on? What is liberalism's role in the historical sweep of the last 500 years or so? And he's, he's going to the same place that he did in his history of economic thought, in which Reiko uses also. There's, there's the Middle Ages, which is really the, the core and the foundation of Western civilization. But toward the end of there, you get this rise of absolutism. And that comes along with mercantilism and uh, the centralized monarchy. And that's really what produces liberalism as, as the revolt against that, as the resistance against that. And so Rothbard's really looking at that here. He's saying, look, all these states became more centralized, more powerful. They rose out of the Middle Ages and, and did bad things, right? Uh, this, this history is not this sweep of constant improvement and all of that. Things actually got worse uh, in the late Middle Ages, early modern period. You had the rise of absolute monarchs, and they wanted to control everything. And there was a, they were rewarding their friends with uh, mercantilist monopolies, punishing their enemies, taking control of all of these institutions which had previously been free, and clamping down on markets. And, and Rothbard's saying that whole myth about how, oh, we needed the absolutists to sweep away all the, the junk of the Middle Ages, he's like, that's wrong. This was the age of absolutism which produced liberalism um, in revolt was a decline of civilization. That was a bad thing. It was a movement away from what had been good in the Middle Ages. And so he's really creating a whole different historical narrative here and moving us away from this idea of it's all been unbroken progress from the, from the beginning and that we're just moving from victory to victory and uh, that, that the state has had a positive role in that. The, the state has not had a positive role in that. The state actually grew much more abusive in the 16th and 17th centuries, and that's why liberalism arose, was to fight that. And, and Rothbard's real careful to, to separate that narrative from the narrative of enlightenment and, and some more damaging historical narratives that have been used to justify the rise of all sorts of state abuses. So, though, as, as I read this, this is definitely not 90s Rothbard. Give us the background on that. This is 60s Rothbard. Yeah, I think it does the, the writing justice without understanding where Rothbard was at the time that he wrote this. You know, he was, I think, around 40 years old at the time. And this was really kind of his farewell letter to the right and him recognizing that the new left energy opposing the Vietnam War offered an opportunity for the anti-state, anti-imperialist aspects of that old right tradition can – this was a reorientation of the way that he viewed left and right. And so, again, this written in 1965 as part of a larger political project. And that's one of the things I love about Rothbard is that he wasn't simply content with talking about these ideas in the abstract. He was always trying to identify how do we package this material in a way that could actually motivate a movement – designed to lead us closer to you know, the prospects of liberty. And anyway, what's really interesting about this is that at the same time, this article helped inspire work by Ronald Hemingway of the New Republic, you know, which was this iconic 
publication of the left, um, kind of inspired by this project of, of Rothbard and uh, Lutterlogio and, and kind of this moment of the libertarian sphere. You see that throughout this, and I think you also kind of see it in some of his other works. I mean, even like the Conceived in Liberty Five that was written at a similar time, the way that his analysis of left and right, the nationalist, federalists versus these Jeffersonian liberals, uh, I think there's, there's some echoes there um, in some of his art, other work at this era. Ryan, one thing that struck me early on in the essay is when he basically praises the French Revolution of all things, and I'll quote him, he says, the uh, series of cataclysmic revolutions that blasted loose the old order. So he keeps talking about this in European terms when he's comparing conservatism and liberalism and always pro-liberalism as a revolutionary force, conservatism as a dying force. And he says, uh, and the French Revolution, all of which were necessary for the ushering in of the Industrial Revolution, and at least partial victories for individual liberty, laissez-faire, separation of church and state, and international peace. So uh, that, you know, I wasn't thrilled to see him praising the French Revolution, but I get it in a sense. Yes, I, if, if Rothbard were alive in here, I'd ask him to tell me a little bit more about what specific aspects of the French Revolution uh, <laughs> he likes. Because it is one of those revolutions, right, where you're sympathetic to what they were against, at least at the beginning of the revolution, because there was a certain elements of bourgeois revolution at the beginning who were fighting against uh, absolutism. Okay, great. Hard to argue with that there. But there are, of course, many other aspects to find repugnant about the revolution. Also, I'm not sure that it should be lumped in much with uh, the American revolution, uh, you know, the American secession movement, really, which is fundamentally different uh, from either the French Revolution or the English Civil War, which which he talks about there as well. Now, I do agree that maybe you could you could compare the English Civil War and the French Revolution to a certain extent in that, yeah, these weren't conservative movements. I know there's there's a movement against uh, among some conservatives of the um, uh, the type who who think that uh, yes, the the freedom movement has never been more than just this slow, very. Um, very thought-provoking, uh, kind of a Russell Kirk sort of conservatism and that yeah, we've there's never been anything good that's come out of any kind of radical change. But I, I agree with Rothbard that we could look at the English Civil War and that was a radical change in England that took place. There was a significant and clear break with the past. It was a real social revolution, but it didn't end up being the mess that the French Revolution was. So I do agree with this larger point here. I do think, yep, there were real radical elements in both America and in England in these revolutionary movements that took place, and those were good, I think, for the most part. And maybe they had attempted that in the French Revolution, but clearly it failed. However, if you look at Rothbard in his uh, history of economic thought again, he's clear. he's a little bit more clear about what his thoughts are on the French Revolution in the sense that he he saw the French state, uh, certainly Louis the Fourteenth and Louis the Sixteenth. He saw the French state as uh, paving the way for the French Revolution, and so I think you could argue that the French Revolution did not actually represent a significant U-turn or ninety-degree change in direction, in the sense that it just accelerated the negative aspects of absolutism that are already driving. Uh, into extinction, free markets and localism, and all the good things that still remained in French society coming out of the Middle Ages. And the, the Louis had done their best to destroy all of that and centralize all their power in the state. And so that's what made it possible, I think, for the French revolutionaries to crush dissent and behave so badly. And so maybe Rothbard 
was was kind of looking at in that way. But the way he phrased it here, how that kind of paved the way for uh, uh, the success of the industrialized state, France was already industrializing at that point. So I'm not really sure what he's trying to say there, but I definitely don't disagree with him at all on the issue of the English Civil War and the American Revolution. Well, I guess the question for Tho is he's talking about a society of status giving way to a society of contracts. So he's couching all this in terms of his antithesis to the old order, whether that's feudalism or monarchism or whatever. So does that mean, though, that Rothbard is at his core a left radical, or at least he is at this point in his life? Definitely at this point, because, again, that's the audience he's trying to, to appeal to. And he even talks about the rise of socialism, and he describes it as kind of a, a middle-of-the-road Sort of compromise between the you know it is it is pursuing conservative ends in the way that it empowers the state for redistribution, but with the pursuit of liberal ends and destroying some of those old hierarchies of of the ancient order um, that he views as you know that that is the era that we're trying to distance ourselves from. It's very clear through this that he he's trying to package his version of, you know, libertarianism in a way to try to appeal to, again, like this this new energized, very youth-centered political movement on the left. And again, throughout this article, there, there's definitely a lot of of uh, tips, you know, towards that direction. And, and you know, I, I think that later Rothbard would probably disagree with some of those points. Uh, but again, you know, this is a man that was trying to identify a, a larger movement to put these ideas in practice and to try to get some traction because after the, you know, the betrayal of, uh, you know, the Buckley Wright takeover of uh, you know what the American conservative movement had become. Well, Ryan, you can expand on this that the idea that socialism is not the opposite of conservatism; it's a it's a middle point between conservatism and liberalism. In other words, it is an attempt. I think he would argue a doomed attempt to fuse the two. And then he gets into this uh, explication of how liberalism went astray. So expand on that for us. Yeah, I think one of the the most interesting things about the 19th century is that there really isn't a linear uh, ideological movement, right? They, the, a lot of people fall into this idea of thinking of then, well, there were the conservatives and then the liberals revolted against the conservatives and then the conservatives lost out to the socialists and so on. Whereas a more accurate portrayal of that reality is that all these three movements were borrowing from each other and trying to steal what they thought might be successful tactics from each other, and that it's not nearly as easy to separate these things out as one might think. And so Rothbard, of course, was in favor of this very radical, laissez-faire idea of liberalism that was opposed to all the bad ancien regime stuff. So the imperialism, the control of markets, the centralization of power, uh, the uh, overturning of, of older localized institutions that had existed in previous periods. And so Rothbard sees all of that as bad things. And so he saw some of these ideologies, the socialists, they were they had some arguably good elements in the fact that they were uh, in some way trying to achieve the same goals as the liberals, but then they were adopting the same methods as the old absolutists in trying to use monopoly power and the power of the state to implement these goals. And so, of course, that failed. And we can also look at how easily the conservatives adopted a lot of these methods. And we can also look at how conservatives hated both liberals and socialists while adopting socialist methods in some cases. So what are some examples of this? Well, we can see in England, 
interestingly, uh, at, at that time when the when the British liberals were starting to make some headway, they were savagely attacked by a lot of the conservatives as being unpatriotic and being uh, obsessed with money and not appreciating uh, the goodness of the old aristocracy and all of this. And so there was no love lost there at all. Well, at the same time, uh, they actually were going more easy on many of the socialists who in England were were kind of paring back their more radical elements and making friends with the conservatives. And so the socialists then were seen as more institutional, more uh, in many ways even conservative, and that they were willing to pay, play ball with the state more than the radical liberals were, like, say, Cobden and early Spencer. But the point then that Rothbard makes is that later on, they just uh, they kind of sell out and they become a little bit too willing to work with the state, uh, the, the liberals, and became more like the socialists. But looks, let's look at some other socialist methods used by conservatives elsewhere. I think the, the poster child for that is Otto von Bismarck in Germany, who deliberately was using socialist methods because he hated the liberals so much. And so he's an old German conservative. He wants to maintain these old national institutions and build allegiance for the state. Like so many absolutists and uh, so many conservatives, he viewed... Uh, the nation and the state as very, very important institutions. And that nation building was something he wanted to achieve. So what does Bismarck do? He invents the welfare state with the explicit purpose of of getting people uh, to rely on the state for their retirement and for the institute as substitute institutions for things like family and church. And because, of course, as we know, Bismarck hated things like inst the institutionalized church that, that didn't answer to him and those other institutions. So he was using socialist methods for state building purposes. So that in a certain sense, there was this natural alliance between the socialists and the conservatives who wanted to build up these institutions that would allow them to use coercion uh, to bring about their goals. At the out on the fringe of that were the laissez-faire people who didn't who didn't want to play ball in that regard at all. And I think that's what Rothbard really liked about those groups. But as so often happens, uh, late Spencer, as he points out, some of the these social Darwinists who then uh, they lose sight of this idea that you have to do, you have to really bring about some sort of radical change if you're going to undo this, these institutions that were still holdovers from the age of absolutism and were gradually merging with uh, socialist institutions. Well, I have to say the conflation of socialism with liberalism is one of the great crimes, uh, certainly the second half of the 20th century, and I think we're still dealing with it now in the 21st in the form of social democracy. But Tho, I want to talk about, there's a little bit of shift in the essay where he stops talking about the old order in Europe and he starts talking about America. And he's always the revisionist. So he says, well, we got to disabuse ourselves of this idea that there's a libertarian founding in America. Not true. And also writing as he was in the mid-century, mid-20th century, he says, we have to get rid of this idea that the New Deal was somehow a revolution. It was, it was in fact, just a continuation of not only progressive era reforms of the late 1800s, but also the centralized planning and interventionism, which was necessarily surrounded World War I. So this isn't – the idea that the New Deal was this big – uh, pivot in America isn't so, says Rothbard. No, no, I, I, absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting as you still see this kind of dilemma play out in some aspects of the populace right now on exactly, you know, when did this progressive takeover really happen? And it kind of leads to conversations about the growth of the state, you know, during the Civil War and, and World War One and World War Two. And it's interesting, too, because if, if you look at it's not simply this, this article in a vacuum. You have the entire series of left and right dedicated to this project. You also have later on um, Confessions of a Right-Wing Liberal, um, where he, he continues on this point. 
And, you know, part of it is trying to identify those libertarian strands of the right and to get them to change their practical political views here in a way of, of identifying again where the great greatest suspicion to the empire as it existed really lied. And, and what's interesting too is I, I think you you see this also play out with some of the aspects of some of the, the liberal intellectuals of the 20th century as well, where you know you had people like like Gore Vidal, who you know were were great enemies of Buckley and, and the conservative movement as properly understood, but who who had his own kind of narratives of empire highlighting the the long corruption of any sort of liberal ideals of the original revolution. And so again, it, it's there's a lot going on here that takes into account just in the context of the time that it was written. Well, I, I like the uh, notion from Garrett Garrett that the revolution was. In other words, by the time the New Deal happens, the revolution is taking place within the form of American governance. And I just wonder, you know, are we going to write the story of 2020, for example, COVID? You know, someday will historians say Americans didn't realize so the, the revolution had already taken place because we have all these familiar, comfortable things around us. There's the Supreme Court, the Constitution, Congress, presidents. But in fact, none of that's really driving things. And th this idea of a revolution within the form, I think, is very Rothbardian, although the concept comes again from Garrett Garrett, because he's looking back at things and he's saying, that the narrative we've been fed about, for example, the New Deal just isn't correct. And this this strikes me as the reason people ought to be reading Rothbard today. I mean, what's this essay's 55 years old, something like that now? Yes, it's uh it's it's getting pretty old. And I am I am impressed though with how early some of his what I regarded as some of his later ideas. We're already showing up. For example, he mentions here the Jacksonians and praises them. And I didn't realize that as early as the mid-60s, he was talking up the Jacksonians, uh, which if, certainly he does in the 1970s and 80s uh, in a variety of ways. And, and I think part of the reason he liked that movement, I, I think, is it captured so many elements of what he's trying to explain here as the good things in the liberal movement. Because I, I think we can say that in America, the Jacksonians were the, the liberal movement. They were the equivalent of the radical liberals in England who had a shorter lifespan than the Jacksonians here, which isn't surprising, right? Liberalism has always flourished more in America than really anywhere else. And they were radical in many respects. They didn't respect these government institutions, which we were supposed to venerate like the central bank. They were very interested in uh, localism, in trashing the federal judiciary when it didn't serve their purposes. Something I've pointed out, for example, uh, in some past articles is, and, and this uh, maybe applies to the, the Juneteenth controversy, right, is that Jackson had once uh, vetoed an effort to have a national day of thanksgiving and a national day of prayer. And, and Jackson said, you know, we don't need the federal government to tell us when to pray or what to be thankful for. And it's really just the feds trying to substitute their own BS for what we can handle perfectly well at the state and local level. And I think he, he had it figured out, right, is that there was a debate there. There was a, there was a natural conflict between the feds and their attempt to set an agenda, a cultural agenda, an idea that we need them and we need federal politicians to, to unite us and, and tell us what to be thankful for. 
And he said, no, don't pay any attention to these federal people. I'm not going to tell you people uh, to have a day of Thanksgiving. That's up to you. You can handle that on your own. And that was very much the Jacksonian idea of self-determination and self-government. And you can see why uh, Rothbard really liked that later. And it was certainly not a conservative movement, these Jacksonians. And that, yeah, they were prudent. They wanted to conserve things that were worth conserving, like their family institutions, their religious groups, uh, their local institutions that helped. Uh, and these are all explained by Alexei de Tocqueville, for example. These are these these very voluntary, locally created institutions that were that were undergirding American civilization. And the Jacksonians viewed federal interference as a huge threat to that. And that that was always the proper posture was to defend certain institutions and tear down the state, which was trying to destroy those voluntary, local, and uh, more free institutions that naturally arose out of society. So they saw a real conflict between society and the state that I think conservatives have always missed that real distinction that's there. And of course, the socialists have always wanted to tear down those local institutions and certainly family and church in order to just completely build up the state into an institution that does absolutely everything for you. So in Rothbard's telling anyway, by World War One, liberalism has sort of given up the ghost. In other words, it's traded in natural rights and laissez-faire for what he calls utilitarianism and social Darwinism. And I do note that, you know, here and otherwise, and for example, in The Ethics of Liberty, he's a very strong critic of utilitarianism. But what's a little different here is that in 1965, Ludwig von Mises, his mentor, and a utilitarian is still very much alive and kicking. So Rothbard's uh, you know, writing that maybe taking a little bit of a shot at his mentor, at least uh, people, you know, similarly situated. So that's interesting to me. But what I really loved is those not old enough to remember this, but Ryan and I are. Textbooks used to say mixed economy. <laughs> they used to use this term, Ryan, right, to, to represent sort of a third way between complete laissez-faire capitalism and complete state ownership of, you know, communism or socialism, or whatever. So that term seems to have fallen out of favor, although it describes basically every economy on earth today. Um, but at the bottom of page 32 in the essay, at least in the long-form book, Egalitarianism is a Revolt Against Nature, he's got this great uh, definition of a mixed economy. He says it equals neo-mercantilism, equals the welfare state, equals interventionism, equals state monopoly capitalism, uh, merely synonyms for the same essential reality. And, you know, if we had to come up with a generic term for today's social democracy, we might call it neoliberalism. I mean, I just think that's the single best definition I've ever seen of a mixed economy. Yeah, and it also just shows that the the battle we're fighting today is the same as it's been for hundreds of years mm. in that this idea of a government-guided uh, economy where you hand out favors, you, you cater to certain pressure groups, you control the economy where you can. What's fundamentally changed, I think, is just the degree, the extent to which the state has managed to, through technology and through changes in ideology, control so many institutions. And of course, this has been a result of the breakdown of those non-state institutions as well. It's taken a lot of that over that it couldn't have managed to do, even though it's always wanted to do. The state has always wanted total control over these institutions. And the people who run them have always wanted total control over these institutions. Just the 
the social dynamics weren't there yet. People just still hadn't uh, drank the pro-regime Kool-Aid yet to the point where they were able to, to give all their local prerogatives up. I think people are more willing to do that now. But the basic formula hasn't changed. It is. The welfare state is much older than the New Deal. Uh, it goes back in a systematic way to the 19th century, but it goes back much further to that, buying favors, favoring certain groups, giving out pensions. Uh, even in America, the old welfare state connected to uh, soldier pensions. That was a huge deal in the 19th century, where soldier pensions were like a major national uh, topic. And uh, <laughs> tons of money was being filtered through the federal government to all of these people who were claiming to be soldiers and in many cases had never even been uh, real veterans. And uh, yeah, it's, it's much older than people think. We're talking like the 1870s here in America and much older than that uh, in Europe in some cases. So the terms just we're doing the same thing we've been doing a long time. And Roth, although Rockwell would often, uh, Lou Rockwell would often make this point, though. He says, oh, people say liberalism failed. People say, oh, look how many people love socialism now. He says, just imagine what it would be like if it hadn't been for people like Rothbard and Mises who fought the good fight, who continued to sow dissent and uh, a love of free markets. And at least some people in the population were willing to fight for it. And things could be so much worse. He said it would be 100% people in favor of, uh, of tyranny rather than, <laughs> rather than just 80%. And that makes a real difference. And of course, the people might say, oh, well, that's weak tea. You're just happy with a little bit of a tiny little piddling amount of freedom. Well, that's not true. Uh, I just recognize that just as there's no such thing as a one cause, there's no such thing as a lost cause forever. Defeat isn't forever. The liberals had a good run in the late 18th and 19th century, uh, actually in America, even into the late 19th century. And that doesn't mean that these ideas can't gain a lot of currency again. A lot of people just hold it up to this false idea, well, well when are we going to have a pure laissez-faire economy? Well, as you noted, that's, that doesn't describe any regime today, and it's never described any regime. The idea is just to maximize within what's available to you as much freedom as you can and uh, that effort, I think, is shown by Rothbard's historical general sweep here. Uh, it hasn't changed in a long time. The battle's the same. The question is, how can we, how can we use the current situation to do as best we can? So what do you think of this as a descriptive essay and how it holds up today? Does it apply to the uh, Liz Cheney's and the Nancy Pelosi's and the Mitt Romney's? Yeah, I think it does. I always love when Rothbard, I think he takes a shot at a few different areas. You know, he, he makes fun of... Uh, kind of Randian perspective that big business is the most prosecuted, persecuted minority in the country. And I think that that aspect of recognizing that big business will change by the era, um, that this is, you know, that this is not seen through kind of the narrow socialist lens that kind of you know, dictates some of the kind of the boomer aspects of conservative politics that, you know, kind of gets closer to identifying uh, the dangers of kind of that, that managerial state. Um, and how for libertarian ideas to have success in practice here, to, to get us closer to something that resembles a, a laissez-faire issue, you have to identify that you know, axis of corporate and state power. And I think obviously the parallels today with, with some of the conversation with big tech, um, large corporations have taken on uh, you know, exceedingly progressive evangelicalism, you know, for lack of a better word. 
Um, I think a lot of those challenges continue out. I, I think that you know, if, if Rothbard was alive today, I, I think he might not see the left as being the natural allies there. Um, I, I think even by the 70s, his affiliations with, I think, the, the Students for Democratic Society, which is one of those organizations he was um, allied with and, and made some inroads. I mean, they, 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 there's some interesting you know, anecdotes about that era. Um, within five years, I think Rothbard was already kind of seeing um, that the leftward outreach was not paying off the way that he had hoped. And I think that kind of gave birth to, you know, the, the truer libertarian movement in the 70s. Um, but I, I do think that a lot of the challenges there to sort of you know, cookie cutter libertarian orthodox, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of relevance in the, the current landscape. Well, and not just for Rothbard himself, you know, we as Rothbard fans would argue he didn't shift, that the right. society around him shifted, right. but his critics, of course, would say he shifted. But he brings up Nock and Mencken as exemplars of what you and I today call the old right. But he makes pains to say, takes pains to say, no, though, the old right was the old left. Because things that Mencken and Nock believed in were radical liberal concepts. And then uh, the left shifted and people like Nock and Mencken became more comfortable on the right uh, in the era following, of course, the New Deal. And also, uh, let's not forget, as Rothbard doesn't, that it's really FDR and the war footing of the 1940s, which, which fully cements this relationship between business and government. I mean, this this kind of fascism that we're talking about today in society it has been around for a long, long time, and it's nothing new. And so I think we struggle a lot with definitions. We struggle. We want to define things. We want to label things. And we want to understand, you know, Nock and Mencken, for example, and probably Rothbard uh, as people, uh, figures on the right, but it wasn't always such. Well, and I think the term conservative, right, can be confusing when you take any sort of an international view. Um, I think you can apply the term maybe conservative to laissez-faire people in a certain in the in the sense that in the 19th century, early 18th century, laissez-faire had a lot of pull as a dominant ideology. It certainly uh, never got people to embrace any sort of radical laissez-faire, but it was at least an ideal for many people. And so you could say, well, America's indigenous ideology uh, from the past is laissez-faire. So if you're in favor of laissez-faire, you're in favor of the ideology of the old days. Mm -hmm. but, but that's why you would call a communist in Russia uh, a conservative, because they're embracing the ideology of 70 years ago or 100 years ago. And so – and it's why conservative in England means something a little bit different as well, would you, if you had someone in England, of course, there's like five of them who really embrace the sort of liberalism of, say, Cobden or Spencer, uh, would you be called a conservative? Probably not. Um, maybe maybe an English person could enlighten me on that. But that would seem like a weird fit to, to shove those people into the same category as a modern day Tory, especially given the foreign policy views of Spencer and uh, Cobden. So those words just never really fit very well. And I can see why the, the laissez-faire, the libertarians get lumped in with the right and with the conservatives. But I can also see, of course, why Rothbard insists on calling them leftists. Because yes, these were people not satisfied with the laissez-faire or with the status quo. They wanted to push laissez-faire as a new thing that had never been quite realized. And they weren't just going to sit back and want to recapture something from the past. Why? Because the past, the, laser, the status quo of the past, was never something that they thought was magnificent. 
And uh, you can look at, I think it's appropriate that Gabriel Kolko's book is called The Triumph of Conservatism. I remember reading that in graduate school, like kind of blowing my mind, right? Because he was showing, and Rothbard quotes him here in this essay, he was showing that so much of this this stuff that the New Deal was doing with basically, I mean, you could call it like corporate fascism, essentially, that this went way back. This went back to the turn of the century with the progressives who were building this alliance between uh, the corporate state and the state state. And there was nothing laissez-faire about it. There was nothing old Jacksonian about it. It was about centralizing state powers, about state building. And so you could see how that was conservative, taking a broader, more international view. And so, yeah, you get you get bogged down by all these different terms. It requires a 20-minute discussion to clarify everything. So often I just end up looking at, okay, what are these people opposed to? Are they opposed to absolutism? Are they opposed to a strong imperialist state? then they're probably doing something good. When you're talking about conservatives and, and liberals and leftists, it's, it, it takes a lot of time to really kind of tease out what the heck you're, you're even talking about. Well, I, look, I love this essay. And the more I think about it now is that he's really helping us understand at, at mid-century the incoherence of both the left and the right and these, this nomenclature we want to use. But though he's got this uh, little dig, perhaps, at Hayek, at the very end of the essay, he's saying, you know, well, you can't be naive and simplistic. The idea that liberty will win, and I'm quoting him, merely by educating more intellectuals who in turn will educate opinion molders, who in turn will convince the masses, after which the state will somehow fold its tent and silently steal away. And I don't know, maybe I'm just uh, have this stuff on the brain, but I my sense was that that was a little dig at Hayek's essay, The Intellectuals and Socialism, which he had written I guess, in 1949, so about 15 years prior. No, I agree. And that's definitely something I think uh, is, is a trend throughout some of his later works as well in, in terms of strategy. And even I think in other parts, he talks about how you know, that political movement of the 60s allowed as a, a means of bypassing the old institutions of opinion-making society. I think that's part of the reason he, he was so excited about diving into some of these activist groups out there, even though they're, you know, someone like Ludwig von Mises, I mean, that, that was one of the big splits there is, is you know, this, this left-wing outreach. To Ryan's point about the kind of the changes between American and European conservatism, you know, that, that kind of also brings to mind um, another Hayek work um, five years prior to this, which was, you know, why I'm not a conservative. Throughout some of these other articles at this time, this is one of the challenges that Rothbard puts to the Buckleyite right and, and the neocons at the, the National Review and others that, you know, he's claiming that, you know, the American right had been taken over by this attempt to, to Europeanize American conservatism. Um, and, and particularly it's because of the, the foreign policy apparatus at the time. There's a, a great Burnham quote um, that I, I think also has relevance to, you know, if you think about where the libertarian movement was after 9-11, right, we kind of had this similar sort of the conservative movement was the, the biggest cheerleaders of American empire and, and uh, really embracing the, the neoconservative mantra. Um, Burnham's quote was, uh, he was talking about the uh, libertarian opposition to Vietnam. Uh, I rather think that some of them are at heart or are getting to be against the war. Murray Rothbard has shown how right-wing libertarianism can lead to almost as anti-US a position as left-wing libertarianism does, and as a strain of isolationism has always been endemic in the American right. Now, that, that kind of also brings into mind you know, the, the unpatriotic conservatives of the David Frum years and things like that. And again, I think it also shows where you know, history can rhyme in the way that certain political environments can shift on this liberty versus power issue. And again, I, that's, that's something that really feeds throughout Rothbard's entire sort of history 
of intellectual strategy. Yeah, it really is remarkable to the degree to which the Cold War ruined the right in this country. I mean, it's just, if you go back and you look at Buckley and the whole sociology of National Review and all that, it really is something. I want to finish on this. I'd like to get both of your thoughts. Uh, Murray Rothbard says, the grave error is pessimism. And by this, he means people who think like us uh, tend to not have a lot of historical knowledge and they tend to imagine that things are bad now and they were always thus and that we don't have all these great examples in history of radical or rapid or happy change. And we do have examples in history. So uh, after reading this in the past day or so, get, you know, give me your thoughts on this. Are you generally optimistic in this rereading this um, help or hinder? Well, in terms of reading this, I don't know that it changed my views any on whether I should be optimistic or not. <laughs> the I do not consider myself uh, a pessimist anyway, but I think I, a lot of that's a result of the fact that I just take a very big, broad view of history and big... We're, we're talking about like thousands of years, right? I'm not looking at, oh, things were so much better for my grandpa or something like that, which I don't even think was the case looking at back at uh, just the unreserved allegiance people gave to the regime back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, what was good about the 40s and 50s had nothing to do with political views. I'm looking more back. My model is always more like first century Christians. Uh, these are people who weren't cowed by very powerful forces in their face. And they, of course, had a very uh, very powerful view of the future. They saw themselves as the winners. They saw themselves as people who were going to change the face of the earth. And they weren't afraid to try. They weren't afraid to, uh, to be killed and oppressed trying to do so. And you don't even have to go back to the first century to find out these people were looking forward to the future and they were looking forward to changing things. I mean, St. Augustine was not a conservative. Uh, the the whole point of the city of God was to tear down the Roman Empire, to talk about what trash it was, how the old regime was garbage. And if you, if you had a high opinion of the Roman regime, uh, you were an idiot. And those people are morons. And it's time to embrace a new order, a new future. And these people weren't sitting around pining for the old days, and they weren't sitting around wishing that they had it as good as their grandparents or something like that. So I, I, I think those people offer us a much better model of if you feel like you're under siege and you feel like your ideology uh, is maybe a minority and that the, the powers that be uh, are out to get you, well, you're not alone. You just had you need to look beyond a historical period that uh, goes all the way back to 1961. And uh, I think that might help people uh, a lot to just gain a better understanding of how these movements move over time. But I don't know that I quite, I don't quite take the same view that Rothbard does in terms of, well, since all these revolutions took place, there's no going back. I think, uh, and he meant that in a good way, there's no going back to the old absolutist order. I think there are plenty of ways the state could still win the case. The state could still strengthen itself. I think there are things going on that are weakening the state, uh, issues of localism, local nationalism, efforts to break up the state as an institution. But at the same time, there's lots of bad news going on. Those non-state institutions continue to break down like family and church. And so the, the outcome is dubious. We don't know, at least in the short and medium term. And uh, the state is very ruthless. 
Um, it's willing to kill people. It's willing to destroy entire nations to accomplish its goal. There is no silver bullet here. There's no one technology, no one thing you embrace, and they'll all pack up their bags and sulk home. And well, you got us. You know, we're packing up the state. We're all like hyper localist uh, anarchists now. The state isn't going to go easy. Uh, they're not just going to go away uh, without a fight. And so I think we have to look forward to uh, bringing that fight to them. But uh, should we be focused on trying to capture some some past age, which which I think tends to make people fearful and pessimistic, and I think that's just a bad way to go about things. And I don't know if it's no? it, I don't know if it's just because I, I was I have considered myself a Rothbardian shortly after being first exposed to his work, but I've always uh, kind of had that sort of Rothbardian optimism, um, you know, because of being so inspired by his his long uh, bibliography. Um, and and I I think that if if Rothbard didn't have that optimism I I, I can't imagine I, I, it's it's just fun trying to picture Rothbard like in physically in like some of these new left circles at the time and and like you you don't do all of that that nitty gritty work if you don't think that there's a chance of success and so I think that we are all better better off uh, that Rothbard had that sense of, of optimism and uh, again and it's it's reflects throughout his work that he's, he's constantly trying to find an ability to take these ideas out of the, the theoretical and abstract and actually find means of creating a more liberal society. And I, I think that we, we all benefit from that, that legacy there. And uh, I think that you, and you see this reflected throughout, you know, articles on, on, you know, his, he, he constantly rails against this idea of libertarian retreatism, the idea that there is no ability of, of, uh, you know, achieving liberty in our time. And again, I, I think that helped uh, perhaps motivate him to to write just as the incredible quantity of, of work that he was able to turn out through an incredible career. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you take the time to read this essay over the weekend, and we're going to link to it in the show notes, it's about 35 pages, might take you an hour at most. You're going to feel better afterwards. I think you're going to feel optimistic, cheaper than a shrink, let's just say. Next week, we're going to have uh, our great friend, Dr. Seyfried Amus, who's going to be discussing his upcoming book, The Fiat Standard, which is not, as you might suspect, entirely about Bitcoin at all. It is about fiat in all kinds of areas of life and not just money. So that's going to be a great show. I look forward to it. So I want to thank Tho Bishop and Ryan McMakin for joining us today, and I hope all of you have a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.